If you enjoy this podcast, leave a review wherever you listen to the show. Consider becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast, or make an online donation at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. Today, Claire Kenny of the Mud Girls Natural Building Collective joins me to continue our conversation about how she and the others of the group come together to create community and opportunity with natural building, and the lessons they share through the Mud Girls Manifesto, a book they wrote together which was released earlier this year. From those broad themes, we also narrow in on what it is like to create our own models and live differently, knowing we have allies in the world who are there to help us, but may not be able to guide us. Through our role as leaders, facilitators, and educators, we can make our knowledge and skills more accessible by looking for the ways of doing that enrich our own lives and those of others. Enjoy this conversation with Claire, and I'll join you again afterward. Then Claire, you've been my primary contact with the Mud Girls over the last couple of months as we set up the previous interview and also helped to kind of facilitate that last conversation. And I'm really thankful that you would join me again today to kind of continue what we spoke about last time. But before we get started, for people who've already heard that first interview, do you have any updates for what you and the collective have been doing over the last couple of months? Uh, we've had um, a couple of projects in the works. We've been on Denman Island, which is one of the northern Gulf Islands on the BC coast here, and most recently uh, on Vancouver Island proper, the Big Island. It's been a busy season, busier than busier than usual, actually. Um, and we're also really excited. We're working on Amanda Ray's house this summer. Two workshops are lined up uh, at Amanda Ray's house, which is on the Sunshine Coast, just across from the mainland. It's part of the mainland, but you can't get there other than by ferry boat because of the mountain range in the way. <laughs> but we have a couple of workshops lined up there, and that's always really meaningful for us when we're building for another mud girl. It's pretty special. And that was one of the things that really stood out to me in our last conversation is how much all of you come together in order to do this work. And also, as I got to read more on the website and looking through the advanced copy of the book that I was sent for the Mud Girls Manifesto, that even though you all come together, you all really are from disparate places and it takes a bit of effort for you to come together and work with one another. And that's really impressive and amazing to me that you were able to create this collective that is really there for one another, even though geographically you're not always close to one another. No, it's really true. It is a, it, it's a big commitment. We know it's a big commitment and we sort of renew it every year by not only working together, but we also have, um, we have meetings in the spring before most of the work starts and in the fall after the season wraps up. And that's historically been a way for us all to be together at the same time, which hardly ever happens. You know, sometimes that's the only time it happens. Sometimes you don't see your, this person or that person for the whole entire season until the fall wrap up where we all get together and kind of assess how the season went, what went right, what went wrong, have a bit of a party. And we also share the skills we learned and work on a project at one of our places. So yeah, it is a big commitment, but it's, it's important to us. And that's where this coming together as it became more apparent to me, why I wanted to have a follow-up conversation with you also so we could dig in a bit more about your recently released manifesto. And I was wondering, how did you come together to write that book? Because it was clearly a group effort by all of you, uh, with many of the members taking part. And what was that experience like? And how did you build it up into what it became? Good question. 
we didn't know how we were going to write a book as, you know, however many people we were at that time, 13 people, how were 13 people going to write a book together? And it came to us that we should base it around our guiding principles, which is sort of a a mode of conduct for us in the world, how we conduct ourselves as people uh, with each other and how we do our business in the world, how we want to be in the world. It's really never failed us, you know? I don't think <laughs> it's like our constitution and we, we never felt like we've had to go back and, and change it. So it seemed very natural to want to base the book around our guiding principles to dig into what each one of those means to us, why it's important to us and why it's still, why, why it works and, and how it plays out in how we are as people and, and how we conduct ourselves. So once we had, once we decided on that, we, well, we were a little worried, maybe that's going to be kind of dry, but we've had so many adventures, (laughs) you know, we realized that we've had a lot of adventures that relate to each one of those guiding principles, you know, how we decided to include client paid childcare in all of our projects and free childcare in all of our projects and how we decided to be all women and how we were going to communicate with one another, you know? It's like every one of those decisions and priorities, every one of those values involved a big adventure. So there's certain pretty juicy stories to us. It's pretty juicy. So then, you know, we were able to kind of break it up that way where each one of us could do some thinking and unpack each one of those values and bring stories. So, um, and we knew that having different voices might cause complications for an editor or for a reader. And so we broke it down further into kind of a history of that guiding principle, that value, that priority, that agreement, and then told a story about it so we could allow for different voices to come in. And I really like that approach because it's one of those things. I was just having a conversation this morning with a friend of mine before we sat down to record about how. You know, very often I know people who have wanted to be writers for years or be involved in some kind of an art or a craft or something. And it can be really hard to step into that place because we admire certain people and what they're doing and our voice is nothing like theirs. And as we write and create and make something that there becomes a comparison there and it can be hard to step out of our own space and recognize that our voice is unique and meaningful and That's one of the things that I like about sitting down and, you know, having these kinds of conversations, because I think really everyone has lived some kind of a magical life with all kinds of adventures and stories. But so often we're not asked to share them, let alone to write them down and to make something from them. Yeah, I know um, you place a high value on storytelling, and I really appreciate that because it really helps to communicate something that might seem very personal and makes it more universal. Which is also something really important when you have so many different voices, is that even if someone might not like a particular piece or the way one person writes or has something to say, that there are other people that they can get to know a little bit better as they read your book and familiarize themselves with what you're doing. And perhaps maybe they don't connect with Claire, but they connect with Amanda Ray. And then that is the inroad for them to take on these values and principles that the Mud Girls are presenting and bring them into their lives. Yeah, I agree. I think that's really true. I mean, one of the stories in the book that really stands out for me is Molly's experience of being a mother with a really young child at a Mud Girl camp. And it really communicates what it's, what it's like to be a mom. I think it's very relatable that even, you know, we're a group that 
says we support mothers and we're inclusive, there's still this inevitable isolation when your baby's crying and you feel like, oh, I got to go off to my tent all by myself when everybody else is hanging out by the fire. And, you know, it's lonely. It's still lonely, even within the group when you are the one with the tiny baby. So I thought, you know, even knowing that and having lived through that with her, I was still so moved to read it. And it's hilarious, too, you know, how just like, you know, uh, sometimes you wish your kid wasn't there and, and they're driving you nuts or whatever, you know, they're, they're dream boats and they're dream killers. That's really funny to me because one of my friends, when I first became a parent, there's a, I don't know how much you're into science fiction or anything like that, but there's a line from Frank Herbert's Dune about fear is the mind killer and these other things. And one of my friends replaced fear with my children are the mind killer. <laughs> and it became like his parents lament and. <laughs> oh my God. My girls are going to love that. Yeah. <laughs> But it is like all these challenges we face when we want to be present in the world and do this work that matters to us and finding ways to navigate it. And one of the things that stood out in our last conversation was how you were talking about how not only is it like on the scale of technology, it's like beavers, the mud girls, and then, you know, on the other side, the like lead architecture and other things that it's really low tech approaches. But then also, you know, trying to find ways to do this without capital, because many of the spaces that you work within there just isn't a lot of money. So how do we make this work for all of us? Yeah, especially when the pressure is quite high to be part of the mainstream, you know, it's um, especially when it comes to things like house building and making a home for yourself. Taking risks is is, is really hard for people because it's so scary. You know, it's such it's, it's the hugest investment of your life in time and and money. And it is really scary for people to step outside of the mainstream where it seems so safe because everybody else is doing it but when you really start to unpack it there's a lot of just made up stuff that's kind of crazy and makes it way more expensive and way more unattainable than it has to be but it's still it's frightening to do things in a different way sometimes one of the things about having lived in the gift economy for a long time producing the show and hearing the stories that you shared is the value of a support network whether that's friends and family or, you know, like the collective that you as the Mud Girls have built. Or, you know, for me, it's this one-on-one -on -one relationship with so many listeners, as well as the community of listeners as a whole that tune in and hear my voice and the stories that come from everyone who's been on the show over the years and how we kind of all interrelate and connect through that. It is really important. You're providing something so valuable. It's a sense of, of a group of allies that you can reach out to and skills that you can access and ideas that you can access. I think it's what it's all about. If I think if I were to say what I would love for people to take away from the book, it would be that idea where uh, you shouldn't, or you don't have to do it alone. You should reach out, find allies, share knowledge, whatever you bring is going to be valuable, share resources, and you don't have to do it alone. And it's, uh, it's more fun. There's more momentum and more resiliency when you find some kind of group you can you can plug into or relate to. With that idea of not being alone and that we do have allies within our various communities if we, you know, reach out and place ourselves in those spaces. I was wondering what are some of the other takeaways from your book and the guiding principles and what people can learn by reading your stories. Well, I really hope that people connect to this sense that they can try to find their own solutions in a world where a lot of things 
don't make sense, even though the pull of the mainstream can be so strong and feel so safe because, as I said, everybody else is doing it and it feels so comfortable to swim in the stream with everybody else. Uh, sometimes it doesn't make sense and you realize, and I think there is a, <laughs> a growing awareness that all kinds of things we do as a culture are a little bit crazy, that um, you can give yourself permission to stop and think about it and think of another way. And when you take that time, you realize other people are thinking the same way as you, so you're not alone. So I really hope that's something people take away from the book is that to give them some encouragement to find their own alternatives and explore them. As you've navigated this road, we talked collectively about the collective last time. How did you come to this work? Did you have much of a background in building and construction? Or was this just something that you were interested in when you saw that posting for the workshop? Oh, yeah. I had no experience in building and construction whatsoever. And it's why I took the workshop, because uh, I had already come across the idea of call building. My partner and I were really feeling very primal and urgent about needing to get out of the city. And I realized I didn't have any kind of survival skills, let alone building skills. And this was a real sort of lens on a new world for me. You know, like building things might seem like a funny, a funny kind of way to think about changing the world. But when you are a person with no money and no skills, who's just thinking about how to get out of the city and how to support themselves, then housing becomes a very primal and urgent sort of idea. So that poster advertising uh, building with mud seemed so perfect. And I was so excited. And I went into that knowing nothing. And I was so blown away and so delighted by how fun, how accessible, how sensible, how cheap, just everything about cob building, which is, you know, which was how we all came to meet was through specifically through cob building. And we, we have other experience now with other types of natural building. But yeah, cob was just opened up a whole new world to me of possibilities. And you know, not just building, but being together and being able to build something with no power tools whatsoever, if necessary. You know, if all the power goes out, you can build this with your hands and feet and your friends. It was, yeah, really mind-blowing. And having watched Michael Judd run a cob building and natural plaster workshop at a permaculture convergence, seeing all the people come together and just how labor-intensive that can be as folks are, you know, stomping the mud and the clay and the sand and the straw together to get everything mixed and ready to build with, that I can see how it becomes more of a community effort to build that way, that it's not just one person with wood and nails or bricks and mortar, that you really can bring a community together and make it something more than just a drudgery or a building. And as you say, it's something that can be done very inexpensively. You're absolutely right. And when you think about it, building with your hands and feet in that way, I mean, you can mix cob with machines, but that first experience for me where there are no noisy machines going, you can be building something and actually carrying on a conversation at the same time. That was a big revelation. And that you that connection is never unbroken. You know, compare that to literally being isolated <laughs> from other people with ear protection and eye protection and because of you're using toxic materials or really noisy machines or dangerous machines. It's good to just step back and think about that. You know, the fact you can build a house and carry on a conversation at the same time, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, not that we don't use machines, we do. There's a time and a place for them, but it's really brought it 
into focus that you don't always need a machine. Sometimes machines aren't the answer. You reflect something that some of my friends who also practice natural boating talk about because they refuse to use any kind of power tools and being able to be sitting on a wall, operating a saw, talking to the friend that's next to them. Yes, they might have to raise their voice a little, but they can do this construction while still having the birds and the animals around them without disturbing the neighborhood. Yeah, it's a beautiful feeling. You say that you do use some tools. When do you bring that kind of equipment in for the work that you're doing? Is that for like putting a roof on or does it really depend on what your client has asked for? Yeah, it's a balance of things. What the actual job is, um, how many people are involved, the experience of the people involved. If we're hired as a crew with a lot of experience and, you know, we're not working with uh, new people where the focus is more on teaching and sharing and being inclusive, then we might use a paddle mixer to mix up the clay slip and mix up the plaster in, um, in you know, like a 25-gallon bin. Uh, we have used rototillers. We'll build a, a trough and just kind of lasagna all the materials in there to mix cob. This is um, a story I like to think about when using a machine can become really meaningful. Is we were building for a client and now a dear friend of ours on Denman Island, Cheryl. And she's a, a low-income person who managed to gather allies and resources to build her dream, a little cob house on Denman Island. But speed was going to kind of be of the essence so that she didn't have to pay so many people for their time. So um, we realized that for Cheryl's sake, it was going to be far more meaningful to mix this with a rototiller <laughs> and just really mix a mountain of cob before a workshop, before we you know, get all the, all the learners there to build the walls and camp out with us. It was, yeah, actually meant a lot to get it done faster and get it done more efficiently with the big stinky machine because it was going to help Cheryl realize her dream, you know? And that was one of the questions that I had when you go in to build something is what kind of time restraints do you put on yourselves to complete a job? Many of the folks who I've talked to over the years are in a place where they can be kind of relaxed with their time. And so it's about charging for the work that they'll be doing, but they don't really necessarily attach like an hourly wage to it. It's just a matter of getting it done. Do you have that kind of flexibility in the work that you're doing? Or do you try to be, I guess you will, more traditional with billing hours and things like that when you go out for a job? Yeah, when we're working for a client, we bill hours and the timelines are, are dictated by the seasons and the materials for the most part. You know, if you're building a straw bale house, you need to hopefully do it when it's dry. You need proper storage. You need proper coverage for everything. You need to get that plastered before it starts raining again. So the time crunch and the time dictates are um, very much about seasons and weather and the, and the materials themselves, depending on what you're building. But we have another way of building, too. When we build for each other, we um, do it for free. We barter our time, pretty much. So, for example, Amanda Ray's place that we're going to be working on this summer, the Mud Girls are going to come together, travel there at our own expense, and work for free, either facilitating or cooking or looking after the children. And at the first workshop, we're going to have 20 people plus kids. And we do that for each other for free. So I work on Amanda Ray's house. And then when I need help at my place, the Mud Girls will, will come and help me. So it's a bit of a mix of models. And we do work trades as well, you know. You're talking about the, you know, the gift economy or the sharing economy. We are working on a new website right now, and we're going to do that as a work trade. So we really welcome those kinds of things. If somebody needs some work done, then we 
and money is not their their currency, then there's always some other kind of currency, you know? And that was one of the things that we touched on in a couple of places in our last conversation when I had the group of you on was about looking for non-monetary ways to do this kind of work. And you mentioned work trades and then, you know, being part of the collective that you're doing this work with each other out of kind of like that experiential place. And then also, of course, charging for some projects based on what the need is um, for your collective and for your clients. Are there any other ways that you've been navigating this space to not be tied so deeply to financial capital? Well, the lower um, value we place on it, it's a bit of a cycle. I should also mention our our workshops where the participants, instead of paying for um, the learning, the facilitation, they don't pay for that part of it. They pay for the food and the cook's wage, but we really value that they're coming and working their asses off. So we don't charge them for, for the facilitation. If we're working for a client, the client will only pay the Mud Girl facilitation team, which is, you know, two, usually just two facilitators for however many people. And then maybe a Mud Girl cook if they need one and a Mud Girl childcare person. So, you know, it's kind of a team of four people that they pay instead of, and then a, a pool of pretty much volunteer labor. So, it makes it really a lot more accessible and low cost for everybody. The participants who have taken time off their their work in most cases and traveled at their own expense to get there, we don't want to charge them a lot of money to come. And then they're getting a lot of learning. We have instructionals every morning for at least an hour, and we make sure we pack in a lot of learning because our mandate, part of our values, is to spread this knowledge and share it because we know people are excited about alternatives. So we want to keep it accessible like it was accessible for us when we attended that first workshop way back on Laskidio Island 2007 when Jen, Jen Gobby was building her house. We pretty much kept her same model. She was one person who was running workshops that, you know, I never would have learned about cob building if it wasn't for how affordable her workshops were. And we'll never forget that gift, you know. And that really points to one of the things that I know the permaculture community has been working on and in some ways struggling with is the recognition that we want to share this information as far and wide as possible and that many of the people who can afford to take a workshop financially are not the folks who would benefit the most from this information. It's a real puzzle sometimes and we want to value ourselves too. We struggle making ends meet and we know we could raise our wages and we we reassess it all the time. Are we valuing ourselves properly because if we're not this isn't going to be sustainable. We're going to burn out it's going to be too hard. And then this model that we have enjoyed putting in the world so much isn't going to exist anymore. So we always have to strike a balance between valuing ourselves and trying to look after ourselves financially and keeping it accessible for people because it becomes less meaningful for us if we if we could easily just work for clients, especially doing you know natural plaster jobs because um, there's so many different forms of natural building coming up within conventional building now. There's light clay straw, there's rammed earth, there's hempcrete. And man, we could just be a plaster crew and up our wages and just and, and make really great wages for it until the end of time. But it would it would be a lot less meaningful for us. And I think about the way that that would change the relationships that you have with one another and the children who are involved and really everyone because of the way that you would have to change that dynamic to be meeting deadlines and to be traveling from job to job 
and customer expectations and just the way that that really impacts the message and the meaning of the work that you're doing. Yeah, it really does. And we do do those uh, those plaster jobs. We really enjoy them because it's a, it's it's all balanced out with all the other kinds of work we do. And we're really thankful for it because of the kind of work you can do in the shoulder seasons, not so much like straw bale or call building where you're more limited to to warmer weather. So it's all a balance and it's all constantly under discussion as the code changes, as more forms of natural building are welcomed in. We find ourselves more welcomed in as well, but it's also a challenge. It's also kind of a challenge for us to balance it out with our values. All those ongoing conversations in order to keep doing the work in this meaningful way. I'm really glad to hear, though, that you're working on that balance and that the collective is taking on those challenges, because I know just as now one person with a co-host, so we're kind of like one and three quarters at the Permaculture Podcast right now, talking with my co-host David about some of the directions that he wants to take conversations. What can we do to make this show, having been in the gift for so long, more sustainable so that both of us can live in a way that is meaningful and approaches that idea of a right livelihood. And I'm really glad to hear that you're still, even though you know you could trade in what it is that you've been doing for those kinds of wages, that you haven't given into it. You know, I hear a lot about people feeling like they're selling out because they need to make sure that they can feed themselves or wanting to offer a workshop inexpensively. But when they look at what their facility fees are to rent somewhere or just to pay, you know, utilities or something can add hundreds of dollars to the cost of a course. And those things add up really quickly as we work in this hybrid space between, you know, the capital economy and something closer to the gift. Absolutely. And for us, the feminist values come into it as well, you know, because we live in a culture where women tend to be less valued than men monetarily. We have to ask, keep asking ourselves that question, too. Is it a feminist value to value ourselves higher monetarily? You know, are we... Uh, serving the movement by keeping our wages low. There's that to balance for us as well. It points to something very interesting, the way that we value ourselves in this society and what we've been told that we can ask for and that we can't. I've been um, working my way through Amanda Palmer's book, The Art of Asking, and she references the work of Brene Brown, who for a long time, I never realized that Brene Brown was a researcher who's really digging into many of these questions. But looking at these kinds of dynamics from a place of research and the way that you know, men don't want to look weak in some way. And then for women, it's about not advocating for the self. And instead, you know, that there's there's advocacy for others. And one of the studies that was referenced was that if a woman is advocating for herself in like a salary negotiation, she's less likely to get the same salary as a man might ask for. But if a woman is advocating for another woman, then they're starting at that same level as a man or often asking for more. And it's like, how has our society gotten us to that point where we don't have that sense of equality and all the stories and everything that build on top of that, that get us to this place? You realize how deeply rooted it is. It's not only things that you're reacting to, but it's also things you realize you are perpetuating sometimes in ways that um, you didn't realize until you suddenly become aware of them, you know? Our childcare thing was a good example of that when we decided that it was how we were doing it before, pretty much with babies tied to our backs, <laughs> was not working for the mothers, even though we're like, hey, you can come and work with us and or we'll all work together. We'll just we'll look after the kids and we'll work at the same time because this work is very accessible and non-toxic and whatever. But 
you know, the moms finally had to speak up and say, guess what? That's really nice, but it's still, it's really hard. It's really hard and it's not working. We need not to have our kids with us. I can't work and have my kid with me at the same time. We need somebody else to look after the kids. But how do we make that happen financially? Do we um, have the workshop participants who we are trying not to charge a bunch of money? Do we charge them for the childcare? And then somebody came up with the idea, no, let's charge the clients. And that there was just, you know, dead silence. And then and all of us thinking, are we allowed to do that? Who's going to go for that, you know? And then when it, as it played out, we've had no resistance to it, really. Because when you say it out loud, you realize it makes sense. We just have to give voice to some of these things, to be having the conversations and organizing around them and letting people know that, that these opportunities are even possible. Yeah, well, some things can seem so normal until you start to question them. So, yeah, the more we can do that, I feel like there's got to be another one of those somewhere close by on the horizon. I feel it swelling. Bring it on. I think it's cool that you say that because it's one of the places in exploring permaculture for so long, seeing the transition more and more away from the landscape, that there seems to be this point where once someone takes a permaculture design course and starts reading a bunch of the literature and digging into it, Somewhere like three to five years into studying this, there seems to be this this switch that's flipped and this light that goes on where it's like, oh, it really is about a lot more than just planting a garden and being self-sufficient. Here are all these other places we can develop skills to create the world that we want to live in. And it sounds like you and the Mud Girls are having a lot of those same conversations as well about bringing a voice to this and finding the new ways. And I think that we'll see a lot more conversation over the next few years emerging about, you know, how do we change these current cultural norms and some of these other pieces that just don't seem to be working as we become more aware of them? That's such a good point. And my my whole experience and application of permaculture, not having any kind of design certificate, but all the ideas I hear about it, I see immediately how they are applicable just to normal life, to not battling against natural processes and realities, such as the fact that people have children, such as the fact that we all need shelter, and shelter is going to happen. If it becomes unattainable for people, then people are going to come up with their own solutions for shelter. (laughs) So yeah, permaculture informs us a lot in terms of, you know, just workplace flow, setting out how this workstation relates to that workstation, how we can make efficiencies and more flow, more a more pleasurable experience, even just on a work site. Permaculture is a module for thinking about everything. It's so valuable. And I like the more that I talk to folks such as you and the Mud Girls, other natural builders, and all of the other people who I see as allies for permaculture practitioners, as we kind of expand the circle and open up our umbrella a little bit further and realize all these different places where we touch on it, that there are so many folks who are working in similar fashions that, you know, for me, the core of permaculture design really comes down to the prime directive ethics and principles. And that if you have a good understanding of those, that you can go and design anything anywhere. And that, you know, hearing your story and looking through the Mud Girls Manifesto, that these principles that you are exploring together are things that we can easily bring into the permaculture wheelhouse and start having discussions around and finding new strategies and techniques for when we're offering classes, for when we're putting together workshops, to look for different ways we can be flexible 
and also make sure that we're offering childcare, that we talk so much about patterns to details. What are these patterns of the human condition and, and the situations of the people who are coming to our classes that we can better satisfy and make room for? Yeah. I mean, we've, uh, I think I mentioned this, we mentioned this in the last conversation. We've definitely had people come to our workshops just for the childcare. <laughs> 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 You're like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm. <laughs> there's a beautiful story of a woman who came. She had two two-year-old daughters, and she obviously was just at the end of her rope, and we're having sort of the welcoming circle, everyone introducing themselves um, and saying what brought you here and um, what you hope to learn, what you hope your experience will be. And it came to her, and she just said, I have two kids, and that was that's as far as she got, and she just started crying. and. Um, we were just like, yeah, that's that's so cool. You're here. That's great. You're welcome. You know, just we hope you have a great week. Someone else is going to look after those kids for you. <laughs> With my own children being only 16 months apart. And, you know, just as my daughter was was learning to walk and getting we were getting some of that self-sufficiency um, and getting some space. She was finally sleeping through the night and everything else. My son was born. So I can I can really appreciate that because I joke with people sometimes that I think it was four years before I really got a, a good night's sleep because their mother and I weren't in a place where we had a good support structure at the time. And, you know, finally, that first time that our kids were taken by somebody else for a night and just that deep exhale that came with it. Yeah, it's it's terrible. You know, I feel like our culture puts so much pressure on parents and, and partly it's the capitalist logic of isolating that great economic unit, you know, like if you don't have any allies and shared resources, then you're gonna you're each gonna get a trampoline for your backyard. <laughs> you're each gonna get a pool or whatever, you know, instead of all going down the street to the neighbors and using their trampoline or their pool. And it's really a your kid, your problem kind of culture and if you find you're struggling with it then you feel like a failure and yeah how awful is that you know like obviously that's that's crazy not to go too far with this but also i think some of the narrative around the fact that you know being a parent and having children is enough that you know there's i feel sometimes a cultural story that once you become a parent that they're going to be such a focus and have so much meaning for you but i've talked with so many parents who they go i thought that was going to be the case and it wasn't and i felt so terrible I realized that my career really was where my heart was or, you know, this hobby because I was writing or even just something about playing pool or all of these other places where somebody might have a hobby or an interest that wound up being the thing that they really cared and were passionate about that gave them meaning and then feeling kind of lost and distraught over that. Yeah, it makes you feel like a monster. It's terrible. But then being able to step back and go, you know, maybe my kids weren't it. It doesn't mean that I don't love them, but I have these other things that I have to do to be okay so that I can be present as a parent. And being able to ask for, you know, just that childcare or a little bit of help and having to tell a new story that pushes back against that kind of isolation. Oh, um, yeah. That comes with the capital model. Oh, man. I heard the great, overheard the greatest conversation. I was in a coffee shop and two moms walked in with their newborns and they, you know, they carefully pulled up to the table and carefully got their coffees because their kids are sleeping and they just want to have a conversation and they're whispering. But I was sitting close enough. They're just like, I have a PhD and everyone just thinks I'm a mom. It's really weird. I'm so freaked out. I don't even know who I am anymore. <laughs> you know, these are like scientists who are just feel so messed up by the fact that all they get to be are moms now and they're, they're struggling. 
and the way that affects our identity and the way that we relate to other people. Yeah. And trying to have a, a personal story or a narrative that is about more than just one thing. And so that we can be whole and complete people in all the things that we care about. And it's, yeah, I just think that the story that you and the Mud Girls are telling about how you found what Jen Gobby was doing with the workshop and this idea of the collective and came together is really inspiring for me because of all the places where I didn't ask for other people to come in or tried to build a collective around me, even though I have all these people who are knocking on the door and say, what can I do? How can I help? But that by this story and logic that I feel so many of us are given, that we don't want to accept that because it's easier just to write a check and be anonymous because it's hard to be open and vulnerable, but also at the same time to value ourselves enough in a way that is more than just financial reciprocation. Oh, yeah. The relationship of, you know, money versus relationship. That's money is what you have instead of a relationship. And sometimes it works great like that. It's um, money is what you have instead of a commitment, instead of a conversation. It's like, I'm just going to pay you. And then that's our relationship. It's all figured out now. You're over there. I'm over here. When you welcome in other kinds of currencies, it's a commitment. It's more relationship. And and I think more and more it can be scary for people if if you're not used to collaborating, if you're not used to negotiating a little bit, if you're not used to just having having a relationship you know like the whole world is relationships and that's what we really knew do need to focus on if we're going to have a better world is the relationships not just with other humans but with everything around us <laughs> all the non-human relationships it's all relationships and i think sometimes that we look at money and capital and all of these different things as like the only way that we can do this but so much of this has only existed for a few hundred years and even then, many much of the money that was used for generations and millennia, you know, David Graeber's debt, the first 5,000 years. That's and a great he, book. Yeah, it's so good. And I, you know, it, his ideas are so accessible there. But for me, I, the biggest takeaway from it was the fact that money didn't exist for so long. And that much of the money for many of those experiences was just to pay taxes to the state. And most of our other interactions were, were through relationships with one another because we were part of a community. Yeah. And I look at what you and the other mud girls are doing is it's a recreation of community. And even though you might not be together physically, the relationships that you're building gives you a support system that is closer to that. Or if you will, to use this language, you're creating a tribe of people who care about the same things that you do. And maybe you're not all necessarily close friends, but because you care about many of the same things, it's more reason to bring you together than just one little piece of it. Yeah, we definitely have something that we feel is bigger than ourselves to keep it all together for. And for that reason, we look after our relationships and we do get along really well because there's something bigger than us that we have to keep it together for. So um, it really helps us get along a lot better, really, you know, when you think a bit more kind of globally about the thing we're trying to do in the world and how we, we really do feel like it's important. Your work and these kinds of conversations matter. And it's let's have more of these in our personal lives or to come together and have conversations like this that go out into the wider world to remind people that they're not alone and that they can do this. Yeah, I echo that all the way. I really appreciate you taking the time to come back and talk with me again, Claire, and share more about this work that you've been doing over the years and what you and the rest of the Mud Girls have done to put it together into a book that's the Mud Girls Manifesto, which I really, 
recommend to anybody who's interested in learning more about your stories and all the cast of characters and individuals who are involved in creating this collective and making such an impressive difference for individuals, for clients, and for all the people who would come to your workshops. It was my pleasure, Scott. It's great to talk to you again. And that was Claire Kenny of the Mud Girls. You can find their work at mudgirls.ca and their book at newsociety.com. Though we talked about it early on in the conversation, I'm reminded of something that I've mentioned before on this show. You are not alone. Someone, somewhere, is working on a similar project or problem as you are, but in this broad and disparate world, we can lose that sometimes, not knowing who to reach out to or where to find those kindred spirits. They are out there, however, and I'm here to help connect you with them, whether you hear them in an interview here on the show, or if you want to reach out to me so we can work together to find them. Leave a comment in the show notes, or you can call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next episode is an interview with Canyon Coyote Woman, a conversation recorded in person by co-host David Bilbrey when they met in California to talk about Indian Canyon and indigenous traditions. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.